listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack of all trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Before we get started with today's podcast, we wanted to let you know how you can get the first chapter of Cliff Hudson's new book, Master of None, for free. All you need to do is text the word CLIFF, C-L-I-F-F, to 31996. That's CLIFF to 31996 to get your free chapter of Cliff's new book, Master of None. Now, on to today's conversation. Thinking about 2021 as a year of transition, my podcast continues in examining vocations very much in transition this year, the year in which we hopefully will come out of the coronavirus pandemic. My two guests today combined have decades of experience in theater, both in the United States and in London, and both are keenly aware of the challenges in managing in theater today. One of my guests is Max Weitzenhofer, and you can read about Max in his book, to the max. Oh my goodness. <laughs> max Weisenhofer's magic trip from Oklahoma to New York to London and back. And then also with us today is Seth Gordon. And Seth is a director of the Helmrich School of Drama at the University of Oklahoma. And Seth has had a long career on, in, and around the stage before assuming his current university duties. So Max, Seth, welcome to the program today. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having us. Glad you're with me here. I think for our listeners, one of the things that I, I, I think would be interesting, uh, we know that Broadway is shut down and we have that sense about the West End of London, and, but we've gone through some transitions here, but just so in case it's not clear to some of our listeners, Max, why don't you talk about what has occurred in London with your half dozen theaters in the last year? I know you reopened for a while and then had to close down again, but what, what is that status and, and what was it like when you reopened before you had to close the closed shop again? Well, initially the UK was in a tiered system, which is very, no point going there, but London was allowed to reopen. Well, they reopened the hotels, they reopened the restaurants, reopened everything under, uh, with the theaters, they were allowed to reopen with distancing which at that period was three feet rather than the six feet. Hmm. And then masking and temperature checks and whatever. What Anyway, hmm. to make briefly, what we found is that, and then the bars were open in the theaters. Uh, hmm. Initially, uh, the amusing thing is initially they said we couldn't open the bars. And then they, we, were, we told them, well, you allow the bars to be open in restaurants, which are entertaining people with food, and we're entertaining people with the theater, so what's the difference? And they decided that was correct. But, but what we did, we found two things very interesting. First of all, uh, we set up a central zone in one of our theaters where every night, every day we tested the performers and people that worked in our theaters. Mm -hmm. uh, that was done beforehand mm -hmm. uh, on a fast check. I don't know what system the UK uses. And then, uh, you know, as people went into the theaters, we, we did temperature checks and, and whatever. But mainly, 
the interesting thing was that we found people wanted to go mm-hmm. and that we had no trouble selling tickets and we had no trouble filling up to, to well, they limited us to 50% capacity at, and distance, but we found people very anxious to go. And over the course of the month before they shut us down again, uh, we had no no uh, incidences of people of any any reports of people con- contacting virus. Uh, we had, you right. know they were wearing masks. But the most important thing was people want to go to the theater. Right. And so you had you had no difficulty selling those fifty percent uh, of the seats. No. But here's yeah. the main thing, and then I'm off of it. Is yeah. The matinees, we eliminated matinees because what we found was the people that wanted to go to the theater were the under 40s, under 50-year-olds. Yeah. The older people, which used to be the matinee audience and used to be, you know, some of the audience, they they still are not comfortable. We're not comfortable. Now, we've been, to finish off, we've been shut down again. The UK is totally shut down. Uh, this time, when they open up, they will uh, they won't go into a system of opening and then telling you, well, we're going to close again. Anyway, we're looking to we're looking based on the amount of vaccinations they're doing to be open in May. Okay, okay. Anyway, that's where we are. Yeah. Okay. Well, and 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 also in the same restrictions we had before. Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Same distancing. Yeah. So if you open in May, you're going to do the fifty percent of your seats is what all you'll have to sell. Yeah. And then basically, as the vaccinations continue and things go on, those rules hypothetically will be relaxed through the fall. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. And do you do you have any sense of uh, whether in the U.S. whether Broadway is on any similar path, or is that just yet to be determined? Well, they've been announcing things which nobody knows exactly. Seth may know about this podcast or whatever they're talking about doing the 300 live performances now around. Yeah. There's a plan New York. to do some pop-up theater in New York over the course of the summer. Uh, and that is toward a uh, Broadway opening up in some form of limited capacity in the fall. But uh, all of that of course is an improvisation subject to change as right. develops. Right. So Seth, with your base now at the university level, it'd be interesting to hear. So Max talks about, of course, a professional theater setting and one in which the the membership are members of an actor's guild of one sort or another, an actor's union. And so anything he and his theater does is going to be subject to that regulatory framework. You, on the other hand, you're in a university setting, while it may be a highly uh, regarded uh, theater, it's not professional in the sense that your actors are not getting paid. And number one, and number two, I would assume it's also not union. What is, what is the one? Is that correct? And two, what's the effect of this in terms of how you all you've handled the, the virus era here and what it's meant for University of Oklahoma School of Drama? Sure, well, the university shut down completely and was online only as of mid March. So right around the time that professional theater ended. Uh, in the United States and in London, the University of Oklahoma stopped holding in-person classes. And that lasted for the balance of that school year. When we returned in August, the university's mandate was to do as much in-person as possible. So our classes have been in-person at a rate of approximately 75%. Mm. And all of our performances have been in-person. 
we have streamed them because our audiences are very limited. Uh, in contrast to what uh, Max was just talking about, we don't have a percentage of capacity that we think of. We uh, space people six feet apart. And so our theaters tend to be, in general, approximately 30 to 35% filled, given what we refer to as a COVID capacity. Our classrooms are the same, and that is true not just in the School of Drama, but throughout the university. But I also want to uh, clarify a little bit that this is not necessarily because we're non-union. It is true that we're non-union, uh, but I, I don't know if that's specifically why we're in person. We're in person for, I think, two reasons. One being that we have a mandate to train our students. And whereas uh, the theater isn't going anywhere, it will ultimately reopen and people will come back. And the theater will be, even though we call it the, the fabulous invalid that is always on its deathbed, it will always be here. But we've got four years to train our students. So we are on a little bit of a clock. And to be on Zoom for the period of time that we would have to be would have a very negative effect on the overall training of uh, a large portion of our students. So we really felt a strong desire and a strong mandate to come back and be as in-person as we can. The other uh, difference is that uh, the world in which the professional theater in the United States and London exists uh, is much, much larger. The University of Oklahoma, like most universities, is its own little bubble of a universe. And in that universe, uh, the uh, health and safety protocols that are set forth by the university are, are taken quite seriously. Whereas in the United States in general and in London and in England in general, I think I can try to say diplomatically that uh, adherence to health and safety protocols has been spotty and inconsistent. And so uh, when people think about whether they want to attend something, uh, and of course, a uh, finance-driven industry like Broadway or like the West End is going to be thinking about how often customers are going to be coming. Uh, that's something that they take into consideration, I think, very seriously. Whereas at the university level, our constituents is not the audience member. Our constituent is the student. Yeah, and interesting. And we need to train our students. And so uh, our students are adhering to these policies, our audience is adhering to these policies, the university as its own little planet is adhering to these policies and health and safety protocols. And so we're able to be live, I think, for those reasons. So talk a minute about, uh, so in a way, we've kind of talked about the availability of theater, we talked about how the public comes in to participate. But Seth, as you have then continued uh, in the manner you're talking about and the, the degree you're talking about, uh, you've made the comment about a one-third size of physical audience present. Tell me about the stage production itself. How do you handle that in this context for the students that are on yeah. stage? Our productions look, uh, I think it is utterly fair to say, weird. If you're used to seeing live theater, you're definitely not used to seeing what we've been doing. Uh, our actors are uh, safely distanced. So generally speaking, everybody is six feet away from everybody else. They're all masked. And so that just becomes normalized. It would actually look stranger, I think, for us to not be masked because everyone is masked everywhere you go these days. And it plays that took place in all different time periods and in all different parts of the world, but everybody wore a mask. Nobody touched each other. So uh, I did a production in which uh, the script called for people to occasionally embrace and on a few occasions to kiss. 
And so we had uh, a gentleman who sat on stage and just watched the action over the course of the play. And every once in a while, he would give a stage direction. He would say, she hands him the food. They eat the food. They hug. They kiss. And that's how the audience knew that those things were happening. And of course, this is very much like um, subtitles in a foreign movie, where you're very conscious of them for a few minutes, and then you just kind of forget that they're there. Uh, he basically kind of blended into the scenery eventually, and the audience just bought in to the idea that this is how we're doing theater these days. That's clever. That's, that's quite interesting. Yeah, great. And Max, I'm assuming uh, when you were, for the period of time you were reopened in London, similar description for what occurred on stage? No. Well, the shows we did, what we found is we had to gear what we were doing to the audiences that were available to see it. We did the musical Six because it has six women performing. They could be separated. They didn't have to be masked. And a band of five. And that was in uh, in a theater that could seat close to 700. We were, see- we were averaged around 500 people a performance. And that show had been running before it came to us in a theater that was 250 seats. So it worked out very economically for, for both parties. Mm. Then we've done... We've done a number of one person. London's very different because uh, there's a big audience for stand-up comics, comics that are very popular with 20, 35-year-old people, uh, one-person shows. And then we made an effort to open, you know, uh, one of our plays at the Vaudeville, a play that goes wrong with distancing. But since that show basically has an audience that appeals to very young people, and somewhat older people, we found that the business for that, you know, we're adjust, you really have to adjust the shows now to mm. what the, where your audience base is. And uh, mm-hmm. mm. you know, I heard a, a piece the other day. I'm trying. To, I think this was um, well, it was on a news program talking about status of, of Broadway. So these numbers, how uh, uh, London relates to this, I'm not sure, but it's got to be you know some similar significant number. I think the in, number that was used on this. I'm doing this from memory on this news program last week. Uh, one, it said that with Broadway shut down, this affected 100,000 jobs in the New York City area. But it also said that the annual, on an annual basis, it was a $15 billion business. Uh, the newsreader, you might say, the newscaster, was making the point that, uh, you know, what an extraordinary loss this is. But she was referring to it as a, you know, a single loss. What the piece didn't talk about that was, I think I think must be difficult to weigh, and I don't know how much you all hear in the industry about this topic. But the thing I have to wonder about is how many people simply leave the industry because of the circumstance where we are, and what does this mean when we come out of the pandemic, and even if it is a, a gradual process, is there any way to assess that today, or we we just simply have to see? Yeah, people are leaving the industry. There's no question about it. There are a number of people uh, who are leaving New York. And uh, there are a fair number of people who are leaving New York and discovering all of a sudden, as if they didn't know this, that it's possible to live in an apartment or to live in a house with a yard, uh, as opposed to a cramped apartment on the Upper West Side, and uh, are wondering why they were ever in. But uh, there are also many people, I think, who are going to come back, who are waiting. Uh, Our students are uh, very much under the impression that this is a a chapter in history that it will end and that there is a future for them in this industry. But of course, they also have the luxury of being in school at the moment. 
there are many people who cannot pay their bills right now. So it, it's hard to know who's going to stay and who's, who is gone from the business for good. But uh, that's, that's definitely something that uh, the industry is, uh, is going to have to monitor closely as we ease out of this over the course of the next year or so. Yeah. Well, it does make me think about um, at other times and other fields, one stage or another, the Great London Fire, and that uh, along comes Christopher Wren, if I recall that correctly, uh, comes in behind from an architectural standpoint, following the fire. An extraordinary opportunity in London, post the Great Fire, in Chicago, after the fire set by Miss What's-Her-Name's Cow. <laughs> but, Mrs. Uh, O'Leary. Yeah. Mrs. O'Leary's Cow. As the um, rumor goes. <laughs> yes. The number of architects that uh, today has been uh, extraordinary ar- architects uh, stepping up at a moment in time. In fact, there are opportunity created by havoc. That uh, now, So you, you may be wondering, why am I bringing up these great fires? Well, uh, you know, the catastrophic nature of what occurred in those circumstances in London and Chicago only created opportunity for other folks. So I had to wonder, Seth, in fact, if you've made the reference to the, uh, the students and their perspective, I have to wonder if what it means for them is it's not going to be, as the theater re- does reopen and rebuild, going to be opportunities that are open that there wouldn't have been otherwise. That's entirely possible. That's entirely possible. And I think uh, there's a certain consciousness of that. The other thing to recognize is that all of these fires and all of these catastrophic events, and there certainly one event you didn't mention that was very catastrophic for the American theater of the 1980s and 90s and into the 21st century was AIDS. Yes. We have no yes. of the playwrights and the great directors and the great actors who never reached the uh, apex of their creative life because their lives were taken from them so soon. But uh, the theater continued, the business continued. And that'll be the case here, no matter who leaves this profession, somebody will come in and take their place. And uh, we've got students, I think, who are thinking in the short term, I might spend an extra year in Norman making Mm -hmm. money, earning some cash before I move to New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. But uh, they don't have a sense that this is going to curtail their careers. They have a sense that this is going to curtail six to 12 months of their lives. Yeah, yeah, well, that's fascinating. Do you feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a quote expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview. So I did a quick Googling and the Great, the great Fire of 1666 of London. This is when Christopher Wren came in and after that was involved as an architect involved in rebuilding 52 churches in the city of London. Uh, The architects I'm thinking in Chicago, Sullivan and uh, others, their names escape me at the moment, but extraordinary burst of uh, talent coming behind that and new folks having opportunity that 
that wouldn't have, you know, on a different uh, different plane altogether. The former Secretary of State James Baker talks about the same thing about going to Washington in 1974, and when Ford was running for for re-election or for election in '76, there there was suddenly an open opportunity because so many Republicans had left town through the problems of Watergate. He had opportunity he wouldn't have had otherwise in that 75, 76 time frame. But a uh, slight analogy, but uh, not not worth going too much into. So, well, I, I think that it will be interesting as the year goes along to see just how that plays out with the rollout of the vaccination access to it. And more people, we get doubled up on that, the more people are more comfortable getting I, out. I, and- but I think, Cliff, the one thing that is a problem is the fact that as far as New York and London go, the physical theaters themselves are all landmark. They were built at a time of the 1920s and in London, even going back to the turn of the, of the century in the 1890s, so that your seating capacity, you know, they're not modern theaters that will now be faced with dealing with a, a modern crisis, so that the seating, the distancing, and then you have a situation where it's all right for theaters like ours because they, they're, they're playhouses. But for the big musicals, the Phantoms, the, the Les Mises and things, where you have large, huge casts and large orchestras, mm. and you need a lot of people in order to make them financially mm-hmm. viable, which you're not going to be able to do with distancing until that gets rid of. Those shows are going to be coming back much later I mean, they'll be back this hypothetically by fall, maybe, but they're, they're going to be slow coming back versus what Seth has or what you have with a play or a playhouse, I think. Don't you agree, Seth? I mean, yeah, I do. And I think it's for similar reasons, because, again, our constituency is not necessarily our audience. Uh, and so uh, we will uh, be back when we feel like it's safe for our students. And uh, Broadway and the West End will be back when they think that their audience will return. And their audience is probably going to be more reticent because they're surrounded by a larger world that is, you know, as I said earlier, is following protocols with less consistency than is happening on our campus. A world also that is going to be more affected by the rollout of vaccines, which so far, again, has not been superlative, that much more so than we are on our campus. Mm. Max, part of what I hear you say is that Given the reduced size of the audience, you're going to put on productions that you that, you know, from a financial standpoint, the cost of production of the art can be supported by the reduced size of the audience. I, I hear you. Well, it is. There are economic. I mean, for instance, when we reopened back the last time, I mean, Cameron McIntosh decided to do a concert version of Les Mis in his theater with distancing, and then when he was told he could only have fifty percent capacity versus the distancing with full capacity, which would have given him 700 seats rather than less, then even that became not viable economically. So there are all these parameters uh, for certain types of productions that are going to be hard to meet. And I don't think the masking and this distancing, from what I gather, even vaccination is going to come about. It's not going to go away as quickly as everybody would think, even for a vaccinated audience, I don't think. You mean the distancing won't go away? Keep, we'll keep the distancing and masking. I think they're planning on keeping the distancing and the masking up to a some certain point. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think about that personally. Uh, I'm the beneficiary of two vaccinations already. I've had my first and my second stage. 
people say to me, what, you know, what, what, how are you going to change what you, you've been doing? And the answer is not much, you know, I mean, it's still, it's a rather overriding uh, concern dealing with this. And I'm, I'm not all that interested in testing uh, whether they're correct on the efficacy of the Moderna vaccination that I got. You know, I don't want to be the guy that, that tests that for sure, but I am relieved to have it. And I'm sure it will contribute to people returning to the theater in a material way, uh, including me. But I think Seth will agree what we've found when we've been open and what you probably found, Seth, on the university campus here or is that people want to go to the theater. The negative we had when we opened the first time was, is anybody going to want to go? And we found out lots of people want to go. Hmm. Everybody wants to go. They just want to make sure that they feel safe. Yeah. And the thing I know Broadway producers are polling on this quite a bit. And what they're finding is that even after a second vaccination, the comfort level of going to these, you know, Max mentioned that theaters are old and seating for Broadway was back when people were a little bit smaller than they are now. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, to put it diplomatically. And so uh, it's tight, it's tight quarters. Uh, six feet away, not possible at any Broadway theater that I know of. So uh, when do we return completely to normal is really going to be determined by the audience. When they decide that they're comfortable enough to do it, the Broadway producers will start doing it, but they won't do it before that or people won't go. Yeah. And Max, is it, do you, or either of you, do you hear any discussion about reconfiguration, retrofitting of theaters no, to... Uh, we- the West London cannot retrofix any theater. They're all landmark. Yeah. And, uh, even the, just, just the seating, even the seating inside. No, you can't, you can't do anything. But I mean, you can dist you, when you distance, you put people in what the current seating is all away from one another, but yes. Right. And I think the larger issue for, for New York is, is not necessarily, can you do it architecturally, but can you afford it? Yeah. It's, yeah. You do a yeah. Broadway musical and make your weekly cost with 40 to 50% audience capacity, and the answer, generally speaking, is no. No, it's no. It's the same in the West End, too, on the big musicals. But at least at least we're in a start now. I mean, you it's, mean the start of the rollout? Well, well the, I mean, the start of the rollout, it's rolling out somehow. Yeah. We'll arrive yeah. at it, I guess. Yeah, 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 right, right. I also want to point out, Cliff, if I could, you mentioned you were talking about the Chicago fire and how it, actually in the long term, revolutionized architecture in Chicago. And I thought that was a lovely uh, metaphor for what's happening in the American theater because uh, the American theater is discovering new ways to find audiences as a result of what's happening. I don't think anybody anticipated that. But when you, uh, there always used to be a, a maxim in the theater, you don't want to stream or commit to uh, mass television audience your play while it's on Broadway or you'll cannibalize your audience. And I think what the rollout of Disney having uh, Hamilton and various other attempts to stream productions live, either uh, you know on little websites or even on Amazon Prime or on Netflix, has proven that that is quite simply not true. People are hungry for theater. They'll go see, they'll they'll subscribe to Disney to see Hamilton and then they'll buy a ticket to Hamilton anyway. And they'll subscribe to Amazon Prime to see what the constitution means to me. And then when there is a local production of it at their theater, they will go to see it anyway. Uh, People are just hungry to see good theater. 
And I think that discovery is really going to change the way people think about producing and marketing plays from now on. Yeah. The other thing is that over the course of the pandemic, because that wasn't quite enough for this country, we also, of course, had a huge reckoning about race in our society. And the theater had one no less than the rest of the, the rest of larger society. The way that we produce plays, the way that we hire people, the way that we cast plays, the way that we do just about everything in theater is going to be re-examined and is going to go through a renaissance that is only going to be good for our profession and our fields and our art form. Uh, and I'm not sure that that would have been possible mm-hmm. if producing and going through this reckoning at the same time. So uh, there is going to be good, crazy as that sounds, coming out of all the awful stuff that has happened over the past year plus. Right. Yeah. That stands to reason in no small part because the analogies we did talk about with the fire of London, fire of Chicago and so on stands, stands to reason. But the movie industry has already gone through that for other reasons, not not the not the pandemic, but it's, of course, getting a more rapid transition because of the pandemic, but more their circumstances, more just technology. So this will be interesting to see the forms this does take and the impact it does have on theater. But I suspect people, uh, to, which I think I hear you saying, uh, uh, entrepreneurs in the theater will be adaptive and uh, learn how to use uh, additional mediums, uh, not to supplant theater, but to ultimately to enhance it, keep it alive and keep it strong. So that's a very hopeful message coming out of that. So, well, I've appreciated the two of you uh, talking about this today. I think it'd be very interesting for our listeners to pick up on it as well. Any kind of final thoughts you have, I'm happy to hear that. And I, our listeners will be too. But I just want to really briefly say, I hope that people will go to the theater. I hope that anybody listening to this now is inspired to check out wherever they may be, their local theater. And as soon as they feel safe doing it, to uh, buy a ticket and to see what plays they're doing. And I would just add that from our point of view, what we where we operate, we are maximizing the safety of our performers and the people that work backstage on every performance. So that that's really important to us, you know. Well, that's good. That's great. And the ushers too. I mean, the whole, everyone connected with, with the live performance is tested regularly and, and has to perform protocol. Now that I've had my two vaccinations, I'm anxious to get back to the theater too. So I'll look For forward you. to it, whether, whether in uh, Norman or London uh, or New York, I will. Look well, I've had my two, and I don't know whether when I'm going out. <laughs> <laughs> I I did go to campus the other day to actually go physically to something for the first time. That's a big step. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, guys. I appreciate the um, conversation. Uh, wish the best, both of luck. We'll look forward to visiting further. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go, would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Opportunity.